Those of you joining online, joining us online, good morning to you. We are in the book of Acts this morning. We return to Acts chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 22. I'm going to try to do the whole chapter. So if you, um, <clears throat> if you see that happen, <laughs> you, you'll believe in miracles. <laughs> Testimony to fanatics. That's our topic this morning. And uh, probably going to um, uh, upset a few people with a few things, but I like doing that kind of thing when I'm right. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We're going to take verses 4 and 5, Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness And all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there, to Jerusalem to be punished. Please be seated. Well, it was testimony to fanatics. And we have one who was once a fanatic giving a testimony and why he's not a fanatic anymore. There's a lot more to it than that. There's nothing casual about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing bland about an individual's personal testimony. In fact, it's one of the best ways to break the ice in conversation with someone is, well, tell me how you came to the Lord. I don't know that we we see enough of that uh, nowadays, but it is an excellent question. And, of course, after they share, they will probably ask you, um, tell me about your conversion. And in, in, in the whole thing, is Christ. He's the Holy Spirit of God at work. There's nothing nonchalant about God's love for sinners. And there's nothing nonchalant about Satan's hatred for sinners. And a lot of sinners don't know that Satan hates their guts just as much as he does the Christians. Uh, but he does. In Paul's time, the rabbinical teachers had drowned out their scriptures. And instead, they had given the people all of these uh, ideas and theories and regulations and rules and really marginalized their own Bibles. This is what Paul is up against. The, The people that were fanatical in that their biases dictated their zeal, their passion. Whereas a Christ-like or a Christ-like mind is governed by the Word of God. What is important to Jesus becomes valuable to us, very important to us, so much so it governs our lives. And that's the way it was supposed to be with Israel, but they departed from that. And uh, those who are disingenuous, those who are dishonest, biased with a closed mind, to them, truth, the truth of Christ will be hidden. It will not open to them. One must, must come to Christ. Uh, well, you know, there's little twists and turns all the time. When I came to Christ, I, um, I had a bad attitude against him. And I was going to find all the hypocrisy and all of the lies and contradictions in Scripture. And I got saved in, in, in digging for it. And so, you know, you, you just... Uh, Submitted to how the Spirit works, but I will say, if I was dishonest, I was honest, I was serious in my pursuit, but if I was dishonest, 
if I read these truths about Christ and sought to dismiss them, rather than come to that conclusion and say, there's nothing like this anywhere else on earth, then it would have been closed to me, but it was open to me. So looking at verse 1, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And for those of you who don't know Paul, he's at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He has been accused of false things, and the Jews stirred a riot around him, trying to harm him. Roman troops had to come into the Temple Mount and rescue him. And Paul asked permission to speak to the mob, and that's what they were uh, at this point. And so he's given permission, and he starts off with, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you. Now, that word defense in the Greek, apologia, is where we get our uh, compiled system of uh, witnessing called apologetics. I'm not a fan of the apologetic system. I believe we should have a defense. I believe we should have a reason for the hope in us. But there are different ways to share the faith. Um, The apologetics essentially says, here's why I'm a Christian and you should be too. Well, I agree with that, of course. But then it gets into a debate system, a series of facts um, I, I, I can lead someone to Christ without ever bringing up a dinosaur. Uh, I could just stick with the Bible. I find the best tool for evangelism is scriptural memory. The more scripture you build up, the more the Holy Spirit has ammunition to draw from. And that's what he will be using. At least this is my experience. Others may have different experiences. But I'm giving you mine. Uh, So, uh, another way to share your faith, and I'll come back to touch on the apologetics in a minute, is the testimony approach. I'm going to share how I came to Christ. Well, when I came to Christ, I started doing that, and I thought, man, they're just going to love this, and I was way wrong. Uh, You know, there's a place for sharing your testimony, but I don't know that it's, it's going to really be as effective in leading someone to Christ as this third point. And what, because you ask yourself, what is the objective? To convert lost souls to save souls, to be used by the Holy Spirit of God, to exalt Jesus Christ, to magnify his word. And, and this is the pattern we come across, the successful pattern in the book of Acts. Paul is actually using the apologetic and testimony method, and it fails in this 22nd chapter. But when we see Paul using a different style of reaching the lost, we see him highly effective, causing riots even. And that third way is uh, delivering the message. Just deliver the message. You are a sinner, thus says the Lord. And we lay out the gospel plan. That's what we see happening in the book of Acts. And of course, many well-meaning Christians and very intelligent Christians have opted for mainly the apologetic approach. So, um, and they're not the same thing. Apologetics tries to persuade the soul by debate, by logic and reason. I'm all for that, but not as my first choice. Evangelism preaches. The emphasis is on the message. And uh, they're, they're not identical. The church in Acts, it magnified Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. As Jesus said, 
preach me according to the scriptures. When you magnify the Lord and his word, then we see the multiplication of disciples and converts in the book of Acts by preaching of the word. Well, where do we see it outside of the Bible? John Wesley, Dwight Moody, Charles Finney, Billy Graham. Why were those men so incredibly successful in their ministries to save lost souls? Well, we know the Holy Spirit, but what what did they all have in common? They preached the message. They delivered the message. There was not five points to it. It was, this is the Bible. This is what it says about you and about God. This is what it says about damning souls and about saving souls. And I'm, I'm going to come back to more of this in a minute. Now, I know this bothers a lot because you've been told that if you learn these five points and if you, you know, uh, if you can tell why evolution is, is no good. Listen, I shared with you before. I had a friend I worked with for a couple of years and he was a devout evolutionist. And at the end of the, those years, he was no longer an evolutionist, but he still wasn't saved. Because I centered my ministry on defending the faith against false ideas. When Paul goes to Ephesus and everybody's worshiping Diana, he doesn't even deal with Diana. He delivered the message. And out of that came the church at Ephesus. And uh, this is a pattern that uh, I think is, is the biblical pattern. We're not trying... Well, let me add this also. Apologetics makes the Christian feel good because it, it, it is accurate. It's, yeah, that's what I believe. I believe all these things. But does it save souls? Do I have enough confidence in the simplicity of the gospel? What was Jonah's message? Forty days, brothers. Forty days. And he didn't mean brothers. Uh, Forty days and you burn. And they all got saved. I'll come back to that. Also, Acts 24, verse 25. And I should add, again, there are a lot of Christians that are into the apologetics. Uh, They they like it in their churches. It gives them something to do, something to say. But is it effective? Acts 24, 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And so there's Paul reasoning from the scriptures. He's delivering the message on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. It doesn't guarantee that the person listening is going to surrender to that message. And Felix is a case in point. And so we can lead people to Christ without, without taking a defensive position. We can go totally on offense. We start out by, you're not fooling anyone. You're not fooling man, yourself, nor God. You are a sinner. And you know you're accountable. And you've put a lot of effort into overruling that accountability, covering it up, trying to escape from it. But yet, there it is. And if it weren't there, we wouldn't be having this conversation about spiritual things. But the fact, the fact that you're letting me talk to you about your spiritual state is an indication you ain't fooling anybody. Therefore, thus says the Lord. I have found that method highly effective. But I also, I also will say, I put a lot of study time into the scripture to make sure that when I shared simple verses about like going to all the world and preach the gospel, 
I, I, I don't know what that means. I have to understand why Christ said that. I have to also understand why the Satan hates that. And tell the individual these things. Use the scripture for your sermon. That's your text. There are many of them. People will say, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Well, you're going to hear of him now. It gives you an opportunity to clear away so much clutter that has been piled onto the image of Christ over the years that is a false image. I mean, you know, you have Christians, non-Christians accuse you of, well, why do Christians do this? And uh, you can, you know, respond very easily. I don't do that. What are you talking about? Well, they do it. Well, that's not what Christ says. Christ calls us to follow him, not the church, not the pastor, not a system of teaching, but Christ himself. And so Paul gives a defense. He's giving a defense for who he is, and it's going to fail. Uh, Again, in contrast to when he went into the synagogues and he opened the script. What did Jesus do when he walked into the synagogue? He opened the scriptures He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he closed the book. And they were waiting for his comment, and he gave it to them. And they wanted to kill him for it. They would have killed him for it, but they could not. In verse 2, and I'll come back to all of this. This It's all tied in. Verse 2, and when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, now before I get to what he said, he's speaking to them in their mother tongue. Well, that catches their attention. That ain't going to be enough. He's identifying with them. That ain't enough. It won't work. Luke's not present for this. And we are called to look at the scriptures so that we can be better servants of Christ. To learn the lessons. And I'll come to that one too. I know I'm stacking up all these I'll come to's. You won't remember whether I come to it or not. Verse 3, he says, I indeed... I am indeed a Jew, born of Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God, as you all are today. Well, he's saying, I'm not a proselyte. I didn't convert to Judaism. I was born in it, appealing to, or attempting to appeal to their, to their biases, to their prejudices. And that's not entirely wrong. I'm not saying that. This is what he's, he's trying to do. And it holds their attention for a minute. So he flashes these credentials to them. Gamaliel was a big name. It would be like us saying, hey, I studied under Billy Graham. You know, or, or some other uh, great Christian. But that doesn't mean. It doesn't automatically mean that you have arrived because God has no grandchildren. It is, it's, you, you, you either are born again personally, have this relationship with Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, or not. Well, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Paul's, Paul's father wanted his, the best for his son, and uh, he got it for him according to Judaism. He's brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem. Uh, he's one of them at the feet of Gamaliel. Again, if, if Gamaliel was able to teach me, then... Why would you not listen to what I have to say? He said, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. The tyranny of the rabbis. You see, really, it's not, was, it, it had stopped being the law of Moses. It had stopped being the Bible. Well, we see that in Christianity, do we not? We see people that are very protective of their denomination or church, even though that denomination or church said goodbye to the Bible long ago. 
Well, that's where they were at this time. Well, they still used the Bible, but it was the rabbis who had the authority. They, they was, those were the guys to listen to. He says, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Well, so were the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth on Mount Carmel when they had the face off with Elijah. They were very zealous, chanting and cutting themselves for hours going through these rituals, calling on Baal, who never answered. Emotional excitement is no indication of truth, a fundamental of Christianity. Facts matter to God. Emotions had blinded them because of the Judaism. And they thought they could see, but they could not. And it was so simple. It was so simple. It was, what does the scripture say? Not the rabbis. What does the scripture, not your pastors, not some Christian pundit. What does the scripture say? And you can drift away from that very quickly. And the thing about a drift is you don't know you're drifting until you look up and say, wow, look how far we've gone. If you look up at all, none are as blind as those who refuse to see. And these are the people he's dealing with. And these are people that we sometimes deal with. They don't want to hear it. They believe in their religion. Or whatever thoughts they have made up their mind. Whatever they learned in the university. Or read in the book. Or watched on the television. Whatever. And that's when we come and we bring a dose of conviction that couldn't be, can't be found anywhere else on earth. Except in the Christian that brings the word of God. To convict. To exhort. To rebuke. That is what Christianity is like when it is in action. Um, I have a quote here from Tozier about reaching people intellectually, and that's it. He says, and C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis, Norman Geisler, uh, Ravi Zacharias, these were apologetic, apologists, and I'm not bashing them. I'm just telling you that's their school of thought, that's their approach. And... Uh, Lewis, uh, Tozier writes about Lewis. He says, one may read his arguments, admit their soundness, and remain completely unmoved by the whole thing. In short, his books persuade the intellect, but never get the conscience in trouble. Well, what does that? There's only one thing that gets the conscience in trouble. It is the word of God. Because there's the authority. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. It's your logic. It's your ability to debate. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is available to every single believer, especially when it comes to sharing the simplicity of the gospel. You may not be anointed to preach to an assembly, but you are anointed to preach to an unbeliever if you stick to the word. And Paul already wrote about these boys but he underestimated their, the, the depth of their fanaticism, their inability to reason anything outside of their, their preferences. He wrote to the Romans already, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You will meet Christians like that. You will meet Christians that are zealous for Jesus Christ, but their doctrine is wrong. You will meet Christians that are always learning and never coming into the knowledge, never connecting it, never, never firing the cannon. They can march, but they cannot fight. And there's a reason for that. It's not that they're, that they're born with some defect. If you stick with the scripture, 
You remember, if you memorize the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, you know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Memorize those, and you watch how God uses them. I, I think it's, it's just a wonder, it levels the playing field. God said, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Is that not a huge endorsement to the word of God? Is that does not that does that not say you do not have to go be highly educated? Well, you have to be educated, but not formally, not necessarily. And but the word of God is what man lives by. That's what you need. You know, in the Psalms, the psalmist said, God speaking through him, I will honor my word above my name. Because what name do you have without his word? The word of God is the mind of God. It is the voice of God. It is the will of God. It is the opinion of God. It is the truth of God. It is what God is thinking. And it behooves us. And that word is such an interesting behooves. These be little beeves with hooves. They don't have hooves. Anyway, verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Well, who else has that much zeal in the New Testament but Paul? Incidentally, Stephen debated them, and he used a lot of scripture, and they still killed him. Uh, he, won on, he, bought, he won both on debate and, and preaching, and still, they killed him. Did anything good come out of that? The Apostle Paul. That's what came out of that. Don't devalue the power of the scripture. Uh, it'd be very easy for a pastor to become discouraged if he doesn't see converts every week. If he, does, if he finds Christians he's been preaching to for years, all of a sudden pull stunts that he's been preaching against for years, and they do it anyway. Very easy for him to get discouraged. Or he could stick to the word. You know, when we hear uh, Admiral Farragut say, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. We, yeah, man. How about that with the scripture? Well, Paul said, concerning zeal, Philippians 3. He didn't write that yet. He will write it later. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. That's what I did as a, as a devout religious person. I persecuted other religions. Not with truth, with law. He wrote to Timothy even later, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. He would never have realized how insolent he was before God without God getting hold of him. And God had to blind him to do it. All that Paul once was they still were. This audience that he's talking to here. Ephesians, he wrote, to know the love of Christ, which passes, which passes knowledge. We were just singing. You know, you can, even though when, when I'm having good days, when I'm having bad times, blessed be his name. And that's that teaching. When, uh, you, when I know who God is, where I know what I'm going, when the only thing you can take from me is comfort and this life, I still get eternal life. And there is no sorrow. So we understand these fundamentals of our faith, and we don't need to depart from them. Christianity is one of those, okay, if you're a surgeon, you've got to get past the fundamentals of, of the medical world. You've got to go beyond taking a temperature and listening to a heart. You've got to know a lot more. Christianity is not like that. Christianity says you can be a basic infantryman and devastate the enemy's forces 
if you just stick to the scripture. Oh, so you have a pastor that is telling you, look, I don't find them in the book of Acts learning a system of apologetics. I don't find them in the book of Acts learning an inductive Bible study methods. There are many brothers and sisters that choose those routes, but I'm not obligated to. What I do find them doing is opening the word of God, delivering the message, and moving on. And, well, for the converts, then they make disciples out of those converts. Not enough to make converts. You've got to do something with them after you convert them. Not enough to have a baby. You've got to do something with the child after the child is born. Verse 5. As also the high priest bears me witness and the counsel of the elders from whom I also receive letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. 26 early, 20, about 26 years earlier, that, that was his zeal. And it was known among the Jerusalem elites, and he's saying that. You guys know who I am. You know what I used to do. I went synagogue by synagogue. And if I found a Jew in those synagogues who worshipped this Jesus, I was going to deal with him. I was going to prosecute him. Verse 6, Now it happened as I journey, journeyed and came near Jerusalem... At about noon, suddenly a great light shone from heaven around me. Well, he remembered how Christ entered his life, and so do you. And if you don't, maybe he didn't enter yet. I don't know how you can forget it. It may not have been an instant thing. It may have just kind of spread out over a few weeks or something like that, where he's just bringing you in slowly. But you remember. You remember when you decided to turn your back on the world. And so did Paul. Paul says, uh, you know, it was about noonday. Andrew and John, they remembered it was about 4 p.m. when they first met Christ. They tell us it was about the 10th hour. Because that's how pronounced it was. That regime change was something that they could not excuse or ignore because there's nothing casual about an encounter with Jesus Christ. When, they come, when, when you and I move out of human logic, be it our own or somebody has influenced us, into divine truth, it is a radical event. It doesn't have to be accompanied by trumpets or balloons, but it is intense. And Jesus said, Surely I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty deep statement. That's not something you ever want to forget. Christ is saying, you've got to be converted, born again, touched by God. I know there are those that tell you too depraved to, to allow God to touch you, uh, but that's not true. Uh, God says, you know, there's one thing you have that I'm not going to take away from any sinner, and that is the will to respond to the invitation. And if you don't, that's on you. Don't go blaming God. I never had a chance. Verse 7 and I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here's Paul giving his personal testimony. Again, it's not going to do it. It, it, it. But we have evidence of him doing it different ways and having great success. I don't think we could dismiss that. I'm not ready to. It's not enough to say, well, his intentions were good. Well, that's true. It doesn't mean I'm going to follow those intentions. I want the objective achieved. And, you know, we don't believe in Hail Mary shots. Well, let's just throw it up there. Maybe somebody will get saved. Let's hand out bowling balls with scripture verses. Maybe somebody will get saved. 
I think those things hurt what we're doing more than help. I rather, I rather that cool, calm reliance on the Holy Spirit. And if He says not this one, not this one, not this, then that's the way it's going to be until He says get them. We got that from Gideon. God sent almost his whole army home, left them with three hundred, and said, "By the three hundred, I will deliver Israel." Trust God. Not just some ambition. It's, 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 we're not desperate for souls. We are poised to have this desperation. Well, put a track in their pocket when they're not looking. That's not being led by the Holy Spirit. And you keep that up, you're going to teach yourself to be better at not being led by the Holy Spirit and just doing something that you're desperate for. Uh, I would counsel against it. Here's an interesting thing about verse 7. God, how did God refer to his people in the Old Testament? Just like that, my people. How is he referring to the New Testament Christians? Me. You catch that radical thing? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you messing with me? And in that you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Christianity is a lot more personal than Old Testament uh, righteousness. And we should be very mindful of that because we are called ministers of the new covenant. And Christians who walk around trying to be ministers of the old covenant, I don't, they're missing the point, the greater points of the faith. I hope I don't sound like I'm speaking down to anybody, but I have my convictions and my views. And when you have convictions and views, you're going to upset apple carts. There's no way around it. The alternative is to appease people. And you will be the apple cart. All flipped over apples everywhere. Anyway, verse 8. So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Man, that's intense. It's intense. God calling you out. You know what I want to hear from God? I want him to say, probably more than anything in this life, is I am with you. And for him to say to Paul, you're not with me, you're hurting me. It's pretty intense. The Lord describes himself by a name that was despised by the Jews. They, they couldn't stand Nazareth anyway. They didn't like Galilee, too many Gentiles up that way. Racism really had taken over Judaism. Against the law. The law did not promote racism. And quite the opposite. You better watch how you treat the stranger. You know, and God would lay it out. Be a light to the Gentiles. Five times in Acts we read this beloved phrase, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Two other times, he adds to it, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Well, when, when Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What, did he, what was he told by Andrew? Come and see. He never stopped seeing, did he? Uh, anyway, I, I love Bible stories about conversions. I love them. I love to hear stories about how people were converted. converted. But again, I don't see that as the more effective way of reaching lost souls. Uh, got to, you can't convert them if you can't hurt them. I mean, their sense of self-righteousness, their sense of no need for a savior, you've got to rock that boat. That's what's in the way. If I do not feel a need for a savior, then why would I come to Christ? Well, verse 9, let's go forward with some of this. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke. 
to me. Similar to Daniel's experience in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Here, the word hear and voice means that they heard, but they did not understand. And so there's no contradiction to Acts chapter 9, 7. Uh, Verse 10, So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. The Lord did not say, Well, Paul, you've got all these credentials, you've got all these degrees, uh, let's just start get you out there. He's going to strip this man down. In verse 11, And since I could not see for the glory of the light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. He's going to to mess with them people at Damascus, them people. Um, He's going to mess with them with truth. They're going to hate his truth so much they're going to try to kill him. But he gets out. But Paul's blindness speaks to us. He speaks to us in no less than three things. One, he needed a savior from his blindness. Now that he's blind, he needs, if he's going to stop being blind, he needs somebody to do this for him. In Acts 9, when he... We first read of his conversion, because he's retelling it here in Acts 22. Then, there we read, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. How humiliating. This is the prosecutor. With all the authority that a prosecutor has today, all of the evil that they can wield, which he was doing, And now here he is being held by his hand, going, he knows not where. Another lesson, not only did he need a savior from his blindness, he needed a leader in life. That's why they were leading him by the hand. That's one of the lessons that comes out of this. He needed to be saved from spiritual blindness, and he needed to be led through life after that. It wasn't enough to get his sight back. We'll come to those who... Yeah, this is another one I've promised you. We'll come to those who, in a moment, that uh, had sight and what, how they, they messed it up. The third thing is his blindness indicated that everything he saw about Christ was useless to Christ without Christ. Is that not profound? He heard, he heard Stephen's sermon. He could not answer that sermon. That's why it bothered him. That's why he, he was still breathing threats of violence against the church. He hated Christians. Because that Jewish Christian dismantled his faith. And he knew it. But he was dishonest with himself. And yet, God knows who he must blind before he can bless. And in some way, he does it. He did it with me when he converted me. I didn't see anything but Jesus. It was a radical experience. There was nobody around to see this take place with me and Jesus Christ. Verse 12 Then a certain Ananias, Paul telling the story, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, verse 23, came to me. And he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him, at Ananias. These early Christians like Ananias, they were born under the law of Moses They had to function in both worlds as Messianic Christians and as Jews. Paul said he was a devout 
devout man. What if he said he's a devout Christian? Well, he would have lost his audience. And just because I don't, I, I don't think the Bible promotes this approach as step as the as the ideal approach, doesn't mean that Paul was not on cue with everything he was saying. He was right. It just didn't bring the effect. That's the apologetics. You're right. It's a good argument. There are many Christians who are scientists who know science. I would tell you they're going to be more effective saving souls by preaching about the scripture than they will about their understanding of science as a Christian. However, we all benefit from Christians who are able to present reasons for our defense of faith. A C.S. Lewis, for example, a Norman Geisler. We certainly can benefit from their points and how they make their points. My, my disconnect, again, is when it comes to saving lost souls. I don't need five points. I don't need to remember to say this and to say that. I need to be led by the Spirit, and I need to be armed. If I go in unarmed, I will be slaughtered. But if I have the word of God as my sword, that's a game changer. Satan trembles at that. Anyway, Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And it's not easy. We are trying to hurt their sense of... No need for a savior. We're trying to damage that. We are trying to cut as hard as we can cut into the lies that they have fallen for without maliciously wounding them. And isn't that not easy? Because we're passionate about what we believe. Because the stakes are so high. It's hell or or heaven. Which one's it going to be? Some remain blind, as I mentioned, after seeing Jesus in Scripture. That's where I'm going to learn my lessons about that. If I just say to you, some stay blind after seeing Christ, then, well, we default to our experiences. But if I say, let me give you a biblical example, then all of a sudden it's got a lot of authority. And that's why I give you the verses. Diotrephes. Many churches are stuck with his ilk. Those who insist on defying those who God has put in authority. And Diotrephes, they're in uh, Third John, from Second John. Uh, he was that guy. He didn't want to hear anything from John the Apostle or anybody else. He took over. And then there was Korah before him in the days of Moses. Look, maybe Korah saw how decked out Aaron was in those priestly garments. The hat, man, the jewels. I mean, he had jewelry on his shoulders, on his breastplate. I mean, if you're walking down the road and you happen to see the high priest dressed like the high priest, there's a striking figure. You move out the way. Maybe Korah didn't like that. Jude says, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. How could he? He saw the sea part. He saw miracles. He saw Moses deliver them out of Egypt. And how does he get up in the face of Moses and Aaron and said, you guys aren't all that? Oh, yeah, they were because of God. And you're not Korah because of God. But that's not the end of the story. What do we read in the Psalms? A song of the sons of Korah. See, God is not going to hold us accountable for our parents' sins. It's one-on-one. And no grandchildren in God's kingdom. You're either his child, receiving full inheritance, or not. It's up to you. Well, verse 14. Then he said, 
The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. This is Ananias telling Paul what God has sent him to tell Paul. And Paul is telling this Jewish audience of his. But those trapped in mere religion value external practices far above divine revelation. And that's what Ananias is telling him. God's going to give you, he's going to impart revelation to you. He's going to tell you things, Paul, that he's not telling everybody else. Even Peter acknowledged that. Paul has some deep things to say. He says here in verse 14, and hear the voice of his mouth. That's available to us. It may not be on, you know, what brand of cereal to eat in the morning. That's your call. But it will be on such things. Lord, do I speak? Do I share my faith? Or do I just sit tight and wait? Maybe it's for somebody else. Maybe I'm not supposed to have a role in this. Your family members can do this. You know, your, your child becomes your project. You've got to be the one to lead in Christ. You're wrong if you think that way. You just want them in the kingdom. That's the main thing. That's the objective. Who does it is, is not, is, shouldn't matter too much to you. If you say, well, I can't lead them to Christ. They've already heard me spend all my you know, truths on them. I can sure pray God brings somebody. That's what I do. Lord, send somebody in their life. That will reach them with the gospel. Take out of their life those that will hinder the gospel. And uh, I'll be back a little later, Lord, to pray the same thing again. Because there's a difference between vain repetition and meaningful repetition. And it takes the Holy Spirit to point it out to us. Uh, look at it. If you want to listen to yourself or the devil, have at it. But you're going to be all messed up. You'll be able to come to church still. You still love the Lord. But your, your, your effectiveness is going to be hindered. If, unless you just stay simple with the truth. This book, you, you know, you want to look at other, you know, I want to find other books about the Bible. That, that's to some degree fine. Look how thick this book is. If you think it doesn't have everything you need in it, try memorizing it. It has got what you need. You need a little bit more and not enough in, its own, in the sense that he himself has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. And otherwise, we'd be pretty arrogant, would we not? I don't need you. I don't need, you're not my father. You ever hear a little kid do that? You're not my father. No, but your father ain't looking, kid. <laughs> anyway, coming back to this. What do you call a church that does not emphasize the scripture? You call it anything but a church. It's not, it's not tricky. But, oh, we, we don't want to offend them. Why not? They're offending me. They're saying they're Christians and they're trampling on the word of God by ignoring it. I mean, I mean, could you imagine that? They've opted out of the Holy Spirit's power, and they've given the power to the people. How does, what does that mean? Well, if, I, if, if they want you to come back. They want you to come back every week. I do too. But not at the price of watering down God's word. Not at the price of my convictions as pastor. And it's nothing wrong with the congregation not only receiving that, but supporting it. There's nothing wrong with, I heard someone say about me once, boy, you're probably the best person ever. No, no, they didn't say anything like that. They said, we can talk bad about you, but nobody else can. I'm still kind of confused about how I want to receive that. Anyway, it is an offense against the Godhead. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. 
Your word is truth. Well, where else can you get it? There is no other. There's not, a, well, it's one of the ways. It is, I am the way. I am the word. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of us, full of grace and truth. There's nothing like that anyway. This is what Paul said to, to, I get goosebumps when the scripture just starts moving like this. Listen to what he said to Timothy. Till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation to doctrine. You teach them the word, Timothy, because we have nothing else. And we don't want anything else because everything else is inferior. And anything else that competes with the reading of the scripture, the exhortation of the spirit, and the doctrine of the word is not your friend. Why is this so difficult? Someone was telling me last, I don't know, a few weeks ago, they were saying how they went to a church and there was no scripture. And they left. Thank you, Lord. If, if anybody ever stepped into this pulpit and said the Bible ain't all that, you need to instantly get up. And, and out you go and don't look back. But if they're preaching the word, don't, don't crack. Don't crack under the petty pressures of being a human. You hold the line. If you get insulted, get insulted. Take the hit. Nobody can get it all right. Uh, they need to get it right enough. They said the just one. That's the messianic title used in Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant who is our Savior. To, no one else has that distinction except God the Son. No human being. You couldn't say in the same context, Moses is the just one. No, this is a superlative that is distinct to Jesus Christ. Verse 15, for you, we're almost out of time. We've got to make it to at least verse 22, I think. I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of the chapter. Hand puppets. Anyway, coming back, verse 15. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. That's what Ananias is telling Paul. God is going to make you a witness, not a lawyer. You don't have to debate people. You deliver the message. You tell them what you have seen. You, this was so passionate about the Song of Solomon. Who is your beloved that you so charge us? Oh, they poked the beast when they asked that question. My beloved is, and she just rattles off this description because she paid attention to every detail of her beloved. Like she counted his teeth and could tell you everything. And that's how we should be with Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what my beloved is more than another. Well, do we realize how important this is to go make disciples? Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem. Wait for it. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me. And he starts in the place that killed the prophets. In Jerusalem, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the world. This is our mandate. Paul, incidentally, <clears throat> Paul violated the Jewish law right at his conversion, where he goes away for three years. Well, the law mandated that the men get to Jerusalem three times a year. He doesn't come in for three years. That's nine times he missed the feast because he's not under the law anymore. He's under Christ. He writes to the Romans, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The gospel is liberating. The flesh 
of course, is not. And the great difference between the law of Moses and the Sermon on the Mount is this. The law of Moses addresses the conduct. It addresses the heart, too, when it comes to a relationship with God. But the Sermon on the Mount, it addresses the character, the innermost part. Jesus said, if you even look the wrong way, you got some issues going on. The depth of the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not the full gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. It's parts of it. There's more to come. And aren't we glad? Because the Sermon on the Mount is a tough way to live. I need grace. I need the goodness of God on my life. Because I'm not going to get them all right. Well, uh, I mean, because who has a pure heart? The one who God says has a pure heart. Paul said, God counted me faithful for the ministry. Because I couldn't, he doesn't say this, but this is what he means. Because I could never have counted myself faithful. Nor can anybody else. But God could do that. That's why he goes to Gideon while he's hiding and says, you man of valor. I mean, come on. He's hiding. What valor is in this? Well, God saw beyond. He saw beyond the circumstances. He saw beyond what sin had done. He saw what could happen if that man would just trust him. In verse 16, no, I'll close in one minute. And now, what are you waiting for? Ananias telling Paul, what are you waiting for? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What Christian would have had the nerve to go to this prosecutor and preach like this? That Christian who is in tune with the Lord. And Ananias is that guy. Uh, so, who he says, calling on the name of the Lord, wash away your sins. Who washes away the sins? Well, Christ, the blood of Christ. And to suppose that water baptism saves is just to exchange one Old Testament ritual for a New Testament ritual. Water baptism does not save. Now you're getting doctrine. This is doctrine on ba baptism. First Peter. There's so much more I, I want to get to. I missed a whole part about turning Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. That comes later. We'll get that next week. Uh, that, because he doesn't apologize. Oh, no, don't offend them. Peter says, Man, that place is ash because they, they asked for it. The wrath of God. And we've got to remember that. We don't water down our gospel. What happens when you try to make salt sugar? Yeah, a big failure. We'll come to that next session, too. Well, anyway, close, we're, just, we're not going to get past verse 16. That's good. Because verse 17 resumes his, it's a good stopping point. So coming back to this, Peter writes, Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This guy's doctrine was so solid, they've never left out the, the essentials. He did not say, the answer of a good conscience towards God, and leave it there. He said, he continues, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know how much theology is packed into that. Man, you've got to love those guys. Symbolically washing away sin with water, what Christ did with his own blood. This does not cancel the command to be baptized. It elevates it. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You ever been to a butcher shop or a slaughterhouse? I haven't been to a slaughterhouse, but I've been to butcher shops. And there is blood there. And it's, it has a unique smell and everything going with it. Well, it's supposed to be a, a 
interruption and decency and normalcy. Things die or dead there, and we're going to eat them. And if we don't, somebody else will. So that's funny, you know, all the hunters are so mean shooting the deer, but the coyotes are kind? I mean, how does that work? I don't picketing coyotes. They're just killing defenseless deer. Anyway, I know, man, people are just messed up. Why can't they all be like us? Water cannot wash away sin, otherwise Jesus would not have to die. And that's one of the biggest problems with thinking your baptism somehow saves you. Because that would then say, well, you really don't have to go to the cross. Oh, who said that? Satan says that. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The condemnation is not pronounced on the baptism, it's pronounced on the unbelief. Paul said it this way, and we'll close with this. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't get so used to hearing about the resurrection that you forget to put that in when you're witnessing to somebody. He was dead as dead can be, and he's alive as life can be. Let's pray. We're up to 16, Scott. We'll start next week at 17, wherever Scott is. Great, Scott. Our Father, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And no creature is hidden from your sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of the one to whom we must give account. There is a truth, there is grace, there is accountability, there is a Savior. You either come and get it, or your sins stay on you. you got to get right with God, and you can't get right with God without Christ. And if that offends you, it's not going to change. It's not going to adapt itself to what you think it should be. It's a declaration from God. If you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, you've got to admit who you are. Before a holy and present God, you are a lawbreaker. But he's willing to bring you into his kingdom. If you admit who you are and who he is, You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. There's no one else powerful enough, loving enough. There's no one else who died for my sin and rose again to demonstrate his power over it. I give my life to you right here, right now, without shame, without hesitation. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be the Savior of my soul, the Lord over my life. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed to say it right out to one of the pastors. I've just asked Christ into my life as a first step, as a deposit step into the kingdom of God. Symbol, symbolic deposit. I commit these things to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.